Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. But if if the mechanics focus on how you change as a person, how the traumatic experiences you find in a dungeon shape you, then that's a different that's a different game than the dungeon crawl where you care about how hard you punch and how good you are finding traps and how likely it is that you'll, you know, take some damage. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Draw Your Dice podcast. As you heard in the intro, my name is Jeremy Gage, and I am so excited to bring you today's guest. They are a member of the Brain Trust, where a lot of my guests have been spawned from, but hopefully we start branching out soon. But the Brain Trust is amazing. You should join it, listen to the podcast. It's great. The writing ability of my guest today is awesome. I'm going to talk a lot about that in both of their games. I would like to welcome to the stage, Kurt Potts. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Kurt. Hello, thank you so much for for having me on. I'm super excited. I love the show. Oh, thank you. For the fun fact out there, Kurt and I share the same birthday. We're both Gemini, so. Oh, yeah, we're birthday twins. You get get four people for the price of two. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Switching it up a tiny bit, I usually say this till the end, but there's no guarantee that everyone makes it to the end of my episodes. Kurt, real quick, where can people find you? I know we're going to talk about Lighthearted and the Kickstarter and all of that, but where can they where can they get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, yeah, the best place to find me is on Twitter, at Kurt Potts, all one word, K-U-R-T-P-O-T-T-T-S. Just find me there. You can also go to lighthearted.games, and that'll always take you to the best place to find Lighthearted. 
Amazing. All those links and in addition to any website things will be down in the show notes for people to access so that you can click on those things. All right. So Kurt, for those who may not be familiar, have talked to you, conversated with you, discussed with you, why don't you give a brief introduction of who you are as you present yourself to the world? Yeah, for sure. Hi, I'm Kurt, Kurt Potts, if there's a bunch of Kurt's in your group. I use he, him pronouns. I am a graphic designer and game designer. And I don't know, I'm just, that's, that's, pretty, much, that's pretty much me. I live in, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say sunny California right now. That might be <laughs> rubbing it in a bit. It is quite warm, though, here. <laughs> Jealous. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally uh, blizzarding outside. There's a little peak of sun today. Yeah. <laughs> As always, Kurt, on this show, before we start diving into the meat of it, I always like to showcase the journey that someone has gone through to become a game designer, dabble in game design in the discipline. What was sort of your path in terms of what might be the first role-playing game you ever played or or board game that had a role-playing mechanic to it? or And then also, what was the first game that sort of inspired you to start creating? Yeah, for sure. So I actually started playing later in life. I, I got introduced to the hobby while I was doing a play. I was in the producers at like a region or a local dinner theater. Mm-hmm. And one of our one of my castmates, you know, invited me to a D&D 4E game because it had just come out. And that game promptly fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> Though I did try to play a ninja. I had no idea how, how all this worked. And I, I fell into it like just with no prep. But yeah, so I, I started with D&D 4E. After about a year, I won tickets from Happy Jack's RPG podcast to go to Strategicon in Los Angeles. Uh, so I took my wife. We were so poor. We drove down at like five in the morning to get, because we're like four hours away from LA. We drove down first thing in the morning, got to the con, stayed there all day, stayed one night, and then stayed the rest of the day and drove back at like 10 p.m. the next night because we couldn't afford two nights stay. Aww. <laughs> But yeah, we, we went to this con, and that was the first time I saw games that weren't D&D. Mm-hmm. And so I played, in a, I, I played in a Savage Worlds game, and I think that changed the way we thought about games, because up to that point, we had only seen fantasy games. And so we started running a bunch of Savage Worlds, and I started writing a bunch of custom stuff for my Savage Worlds games, but I still didn't really consider myself a game designer. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until maybe like three or four years ago now at at another Strategicon event, they have three a year. Dave Kazay made a challenge to everyone at a live recording of Happy Jacks to go and make games. And I was like, I'm going to do that. And the next time I came back to the con, I had a game. I was running my own game that I wrote. And that was, I think that game, that game's still not out. I never finished it. <laughs> but but yeah, that's that's what got me into into game design. I'm curious, did that, did that, does that game have a project title or anything like that? Sure, yeah. The, so the first game that I wrote that was kind of like a role-playing game was called House Rule. And it was a, it started out, it was actually called something else. And it was about goblins competing to see who, the chieftain has died and the goblins have to compete to see who's going to be the next chief. And I got convinced because it was during the Game of Thrones craze to change it to a Game of Thrones game. And then now it was houses competing to see who was going to sit on the Iron Throne. It, it's it's dice borrowing, stealing game. where, mm-hmm. But it takes so many. Like, you need, like, 60-plus D6s at a table <laughs> to play it. There's so many dice. And so they have Shadowrun fans. It's, it, w- yes, we, we're playing Shadowrun at the time. I definitely have <laughs> enough dice to play the game. 
But yeah, it's it is it is not a game that you can expect people to be able to play. It's also nearly impossible to play online because mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. you are rolling these giant pools of d6s and the dice have to be you have to be able to differentiate the dice so like each person needs a different color of dice so that you can steal dice from people, roll them and then give them back <laughs> and know which oh. ones were theirs. And so yeah, it's impossible to play online, but it was it was a good time. It's there's like almost no role playing in it. You have to force the role playing in. It's like role playing Monopoly. Heard. <laughs> it's possible, but I do love this idea of a dice dealing mechanic. I think it's something that I'm gonna really have to start thinking about in some of my designs. It's it sounds very interesting. Well, great. Let's with all of the formalities of the show in place. Let's talk about the first game. I think for this first segment, because I usually break it up after we talk about the first game, because I want to save a a big chunk for Lighthearted. Let's talk about Sigils in the Dark. Sure. So Sigils in the Dark is a sigil drawing journaling game that also doubles as GM prep if you want, because it generates an in-world artifact. You play as a dark mage who is uncovering the meaning of sigils that they can see in the shadows to hopefully get enough power to claim their need. They have a desperate need, like someone needs to know how know how important they are or they're going to show them all, that kind of thing. And so you are you going through and you're rolling randomly on these tables and generating purposes for little sigils, little mm-hmm. artifacts. Uh, and then you're adding those into a sigil work structure that the mm-hmm. game sort of walks you through how to draw. So the cool thing about the game for me is that you actually end up making a bunch of neat little circular with, you know, triangles and pentagrams and stuff in there, sigils that look cool. And it's you don't really need to know how to draw to do it because the shapes are all simple enough that anyone could make the shape or replicate the shape. And the structure of it sort of guides you through. But yeah, I, I, cr- I started writing that game for a a friend was going to try to put together a zine called Grimspirational or no Grim it was it was like so spo- supposed to be grim but hopeful like you start mm-hmm. out grim and it gets better and i was like i don't know how to do that i'm currently writing <laughs> lighthearted with my wife <laughs> and lighthearted is like the most hopeful game and like mm-hmm. bright neon colors and everything and i was like well there's this thing called the darkness in lighthearted and There are dark mages who get tempted by the darkness. And I was like, what if I made a game as like, for me, as GM prep, so I could just make a a journal and then throw a composition notebook on the table when I'm running lighthearted and be like, you find this. And it turned out to be really fun to play. Like the, the, it's not super heavy on the RP again. The, the way that the RP sort of comes out in Sigils in the Dark is you are you're making a composition notebook or you know printing out pages and writing in it and there's little places where it's like name your spell that you just made up and then mm-hmm. like come up with costs so you have to roll randomly on these cost tables and the mm-hmm. costs get worse and worse as you go on and you learn more about dark magic and so like you might start out like the cost might be a lie believed uh, mm-hmm. or an apple stolen right and mm-hmm. so like those are minor costs that's something you could do in the cafeteria of your high school or you know in the lunchroom at work the bigger costs start to get into things like it's like a love broken or stuff like that. Right. And then it starts to get into more dark, like you have to murder someone or you have to convince three people to be cultists for you or stuff like that. And so it starts to get a little dark as it goes. And the whole point of the, the, like the idea behind the game was at what point do you cut your losses and 
why do you keep doubling down? Like I wanted to explore why would someone continue to double down when it's getting like it's clearly the things they're doing are not worth it anymore. But they are they have that sunk cost fallacy where they're like, but I'm so close mm-hmm. to getting my need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love it. It's it's the the PDF is about eleven pages for anyone who hasn't gotten the game, but you should get the game. It's it's only uh, two dollars on it's, it, yeah, I it's, believe. It's two ninety nine and the suggested price is six dollars and sixty six cents. Yeah. Because yeah. you know Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> I see it. Uh what I really, I think the thing I love most, when I think about, I always use D&D as sort of the guiding benchmark metric because it's what listeners are probably generally most familiar with. But when I think about spellcasting in D&D, and if D&D was the only game that I played, and this speaking to 5th edition, I don't know anything about any of the previous editions of these existed. Great. But this is 2021, everyone. So... <laughs> I like this concept of conditional costs when it comes to the spells because it adds weight to the spell. You know, when we watch anime, TV shows, movies, it's it's never like it's never just I need eye of newt and and slice of apple, right? It's the bigger spells, the plot twisting spells are always these things that have like sacrifice the virgin, get the blood of a lover or something like that, right? And the and those conditional costs add narrative moments to storytelling, right? You have to tell a whole story to get that conditional cost to happen, which I think is way more engaging in terms of a component. Now, in terms of D&D 5e, the game is not structured to, like, facilitate having a animal present when you need to cast a spell, right? It's not like I need my five foot of movement and then I'm going to do the whole lamb shindig. Uh, I will not describe it on the show for anyone that may have sensitive intentions or innocent intentions. But the point is like, I need an angel. It goes beyond just needing an angel feather. Well, even an angel feather is a pretty big deal. It goes beyond needing fur of a cat, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Gold, uh, a diamond, a 300 gold piece diamond. Like those things are only narratively rooted if the GM does the work to make them so. But mm-hmm. if the game from the get-go says, okay, all spells have conditional costs to them and those those get bigger if you want a bigger spell, right? And when does that, when you start tapping into the dark sides of like, ooh, this spell needs some weird-ish. And I don't know if my co- character is comfortable doing that. So I love that the this that Sigils in the Dark as a solo journaling game captures that sort of you know, I think about the current spoilers for Critical Role, if anyone's watching that, who listens to this. But there's a character in Campaign 2 named Caleb, where I think Caleb's story of hunting down the spells that will accomplish his dreams would be way more impactful narratively if he had to, if he had those conditional costs to them, rather than just, I need bat guano or spider's venom right i need to be able to access these dark energies so i love it i think it's very cool these conditional costs in the game what was and i was gonna ask you you answered like three of my questions in that (laughs) explanation so kudos to you but i also love that this game came as a derivative of lighthearted like Mm -hmm. it was this it's almost like taking Tyler Crumrine on here a while ago, and we talked about how he likes to make toolkit games, as we've coined on the show, similar to the what 
Sigils in the Dark is, mm-hmm. and how it came from gamifying the prep that is sometimes tedious when it comes to, you know, specifically when the Dungeon Master's Guide tries to teach you how to be a DM at, in a not very great way. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> or how to be organized. But I love that it sort of peeled off from that. And I think that when we look at hacks of games, piecemeal games, or abstractions of mechanics from other games, there's this really interesting thing that can happen. The serendipitous moment of like, oh, this is also a game I can put in my game, right? Like you could keep pumping your gameception, really. So uh, big, big claps for all the sigil in the dark pieces. Was there any other sort of inspiration sort of the magic of solomon style sigils which are very kind of abstract but also geometric and and science filled to some extent so i where was the were you just doodling and making those symbols or did you find them so okay so i i was definitely just doodling making this the symbols i i specifically didn't go looking for examples Mm -hmm. because i Mm -hmm. did not want it to represent or to I didn't want it to be stealing any like either mm-hmm. either real world religion like sigil practice. I didn't mm-hmm. want it to 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 steal anything from like Wicca or anything like that or mm-hmm. any any practices. I I didn't want to appropriate someone's real life religion, right? I didn't want that sure. to be gamified because that's not cool. Sure. But there is there. I mean, there's a big tradition of in like gaming and art that I've seen that of using these types of symbols, it definitely harkens back to that like pentagram style that you might find on the cover of a metal album. Like it's, it's got that kind of vibe to it. If, if I lucked into replicating any real life sigil work, it was by accident. (laughs) But yeah, it was, it was purpose purposefully didn't look for, for anything. So I, cause I didn't want it to seem uh, Mm -hmm. like I was borrowing somebody's you know, real life practices. Right, uh, right. It's smart. I think that's absolutely smart. And I don't know, it's just, it, the symbols are just cool. So that's why I asked. I was like, wow, these are just, I love all of these. Yeah, so Sigil in the Dark, two ninety nine. but, you know, pay the 666 because, you know, do it. <laughs> I, uh, I knew who the audience was, so I made it. <laughs> you know what? It actually, I would say about 50% pay the 666. And I want to say there there are isolation copies on there for anyone who's mm-hmm. in isolation. I released the game in March or February of last year. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it because the pers- the zine that it was supposed to be in fell through. Mm-hmm. And it just happened that the pandemic had started up and I was like, you know what? This needs to go up. And I, I put on there, anyone who's in isolation, here's the thing you can do by yourself in your house. Like, just take it for free. I don't want you to have to pay me Please just stay safe and don't, you know, don't lose your mind sitting in your house while you're on lockdown. I had no idea it was going to be <laughs> a year later and we're still in lockdown in some places. But, but yeah, so if you see, if you want one of those isolation copies, just take it. I recently just watched a video of one of my like productivity gurus on YouTube who literally just straight up moved to Australia because they have have it on lockdown. <laughs> he was like, all right, I'm just going to move there because I can't anymore. So I hope everyone is still doing okay out there. This is a good like safety ASMR. Like we, we hear you. We're here for you. If you ever need to chat with someone, just tip me up at Jeremy Gage 5 over on Twitter. I'm here to talk. 
Let's be isolated together. In this section, we talk about design trends that you are noticing that are within your circles of interest or also trends that you want to speak into the ether or or speak into existence or if there are any trends that you're noticing that kind of need to dial it back, like har- like harmful trends or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, Kurt, what are some trends that you're noticing that keep popping up on your radar or that you sort of want to see more of in yeah. game design? Sure, sure. Something something I'm noticing that I'm I'm really enjoying is games that focus a lot on the structure of play. Mm-hmm. They sort of focus on how how you structure a story and how you can tell a story through the game mechanics. Mm-hmm. I've been running Great American Witch for a little while, which is written by Christopher Gray. It's based on Great American Novel, which is also written by Christopher Gray, and it's 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 built on this like novel structure, right? You have types of, I forget what they're called, maybe chapters, uh, mm-hmm. but you have types of scenes or, or framing around mm. the, a scene when you go into something. And so when you, when you start a scene, you might say, uh, you know, oh, this is going to be a, now I'm blanking on what they're called. Shoot. But you, you might, you might start a scene and say like, oh, this is going to be a, a mission. And so all of our mm-hmm. characters get to look badass in this scene. And so, mm-hmm. the, like, you're still rolling dice to resolve what's happening, but mm-hmm. you're driving towards knowing we're going to get to look like badasses here. Counter to that, you might start a scene and say this is a um, menace, menace chapter. That's the other one. And so you know we're going to get our asses kicked in this chapter. And so you can mm-hmm. kind of drive the story towards that. It, it takes a little bit more of a writer's roomy approach sometimes. For, I know not everyone likes to kind of know where a scene is going. But mm-hmm. personally, like the way I like to play, if I know where a scene is going, then I can make choices that make openings for others in the scene to, to hit those moments. I can, I can fail on purpose so that someone else has the opportunity to look like a badass saving my character. That kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... When a game tells you explicitly, hey, this scene is going to have these kind of elements, it feels it feels a little more satisfying at the end because you you everyone drives towards those those elements. And when you're trying to build a certain type of story, you can kind of, you know, cobble these together. And then when you look back at the game you played, you don't remember, oh, well, I made this choice because of this. You remember the story you all told together. And mm-hmm. it fits the type of stories that you were trying to go for because the scenes that you put in place drive you towards those sort of those sort of moments. I I also recently played Space Bounty Blues by Rob Hebert. It's a cool game that is built on the structure of jazz music, mm-hmm. and it's it's a cowboy bebop game. And, <laughs> of and course, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a GMless cowboy bebop game. You play bounty Damn. hunter, space bounty hunters, and it's. You start by, and everything is named after the, the like, parts of a jazz song, right? And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. The, you have the head, and you have the solos, and you have the head out. And, like, so you start off by everyone just sort of comes up with the bounty that you're going to go after together. And then you do these solos where one person takes the lead and one person is a follow. 
and you're you're doing the investigation part of it and your lead is the character who's in the in the lead and like other characters can be in the scenes but they're not like the Mm -hmm. focus of the scene so you're like going Mm -hmm. through these solos and then the the follow is sort of like gming the scene for you right they're the ones that present opposition and that kind of stuff and then when you get through that once you've everyone's had a chance to do a solo you come back together and now you kind of you've built enough of like we know where the the bounty is we know how we're going to try to get them and then now you do a bunch of things where you roll and see if you actually get them and then if you get them you get your wulongs and if you don't you don't and (laughs) and it's it's a really cool way to look at jazz jazz music is a really cool way to look at an improvised story right Mm because i was i was talking to rob specifically about this and he was saying that you know there are other improvisation traditions other than role-playing why don't we go look at those and how those are structured and try to bring Mm -hmm. some of that over so Seeing seeing some of that structure drive story in in a way that makes it kind of feel satisfying more mm-hmm. frequently than you because you I mean I'm sure everyone's been in a story game where there's not a lot of structure there and it's a a minimal amount and I don't get me wrong I love games where like the how much excuse do you need to play pretend is something I try to walk into a game <laughs> right that whenever I try yeah. to design a game I say how much of an excuse do I need to give you to play pretend but. Mm-hmm. Having that structure in place just makes it a little more consistent, right? You end up with more satisfying stories more consistently. So. Yeah, there's this there's this book that I have called The Story Grid by, I believe his name is Sean Coyne. And it talks about how instead of looking at genre as categories, it's more analyzing genre as boxes. So like when you open the action box you should there are all these conventions and necessary elements to make a story feel like an action story if you don't have these then this story is something else and it helps you sort of delineate or not delineate but fig, uh, helps you figure out what you want to subvert what you want to uh, leave in slash take out and what's necessary to leave in, right? We need a big explosion or something to that effect where it's not an action story, right? Horror, military, all that stuff. So what I love about these trends and games that you've mentioned is that I, I'm in I'm in the boat where I don't like the meandering sort of story where it's like, well, what do you want to do? I love more where there's this guidance of these are the beats we need to hit. I've been playing uh, a game of Heart the City Beneath for a little while now, and I love the beats mechanic for all the callings where you have to tell the GM, like, hey, these are the two things I want to see next session or within the next couple sessions. And I'm like, cool, let's let's make it happen. And then that sort of aligns with their particular calling, as they call it in the book. So both of these games playing with, and I, the Space Bounty Blues is awesome because I've also really thought about how to approach other structures and bringing them into story. It was like in my attempt to be a novel writer, I tried a couple NaNoWriMo's, never happened. (laughs) I am not that strong of a novel writer currently, but just this idea of finding the start to the finish and the points need to hit, right? Like something that goes beyond the inciting incident, climax, resolution, sort of a roller coaster structure, right? Something that has a little bit more meat in terms of describing to you like 
and something not as esoteric as the hero's journey by Joseph Campbell. Like that's, that's a whole nother animal, right? Like I've been really attracted to Dan, Her- Her- excuse me, Dan Harmon's story circle about how he constructs TV episodes and their stories. And I think that's really cool. So for anyone who likes a more goal oriented game, it, I mean, I'm going to go look for copies of these for the great American witch and space bounty blues. Cause that sounds radical. <laughs> Any other trends, Kurt, that you want to touch on or maybe something you want to speak into existence for people? Oh, wow. You know, I I have to say that the the way that jams have been functioning on itch recently, this is more of a like just game design as a community trends, but mm-hmm. seeing seeing little games gain big traction with a bunch of people making small little supplements for them. Sledgehammer was the most recent one that did this, where yep. the the game Sledgehammer was was small and cute and fun, and it had like a, a neat idea in it. But I think like the momentum around seeing all these tiny little zines following suit that really like that really builds up that little game and makes it more of a community experience uh, where everyone is trying to like add on and and do more with it. And I think it can sort of breathe life into a little game like that. I, I still haven't figured out how to write a game that goes that starts one of those jams, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I love I love getting in there and and adding on and and being part of those little communities that build up around like an idea, right? Like I I did write a game called The Uplift that followed the well, oh shoot what was it called What's so cool about outer space jam? Mm-hmm. And so the What's so cool about jam was where everybody was coming up with their version of the What's so cool about little story and it was basically i think it was oh shoot what's their name the anti-sisyphus person anyways so yeah so everyone was coming up with their what's so cool about thing and i did one about uplifted animals and just seeing all the neat games that come around out of those like tiny little systems and barely any any game there but everybody expanding on it and adding their own ideas to it it's it's kind of neat it's almost like this i think about the sort of D&D Beyond model where you can get a whole core book or since it's digital, you can modularly, forgive me everyone, (laughs) I'm not good with L's, but sort of this modular purchase of like, okay, I don't want Xanathar's Guide to Everything. What I do want is the Oath of Redemption Paladin. So like, I'm just gonna snatch that for two bucks, right? And so I like this concept of, because I talked about this with, shoot. I talked about this with Spencer Campbell a couple nights ago when we were discussing our games in like our little coffee cafe meetup. (laughs) And we talked about how light and frame are both very modular rule systems or like you can sort of, you could create like a binder of like the different mini zines or pages and like take in or insert or take out pieces. And like, this is my light. This is my frame that I purchased, right? Like this is my version of it. So I find it interesting that like when we take the concept similar to Sledgehammer, there could be someone who takes like the main Sledgehammer single page RPG and then buys bits and baubles for it. And like, this is a, this is their sledgehammer book right like this is their version of the sledgehammer book and i've and it also creates like this trading card game sort of aspect too with like close circle of friends right because like oh i got the sledgehammer uh piece that talks about angels and gods and deities and stuff and oh i got the one that talks about weapons can we use both of these in our like campaign 
uh, moving forward. And then it's like that sort of experience. I think what you touch on there is sort of this modular purchase, like creating your own core, I guess. Like there's this one staple piece that Mm -hmm. is the main set of rules that delineates the whole game, like resolution systems or whatever. And then there's there are all these tack on supplements. They're like, okay, I want these classes, and I want these optional rules, and I want to add the spell casting in this, right? Like, I think that sort of jam model could be really, really cool as like not only uh, a community builder, as you stated, but also sort of like as a business opportunity. Because this show is not only just about the fun of making game design, it's also the fun of the business of game design, right? So considering different models to innovate in on the market, especially for indie style communities, is something to to analyze for sure. So I, I love that. Yeah, it's it's been really cool to, to be a part of those. Right, it's time for the big colorful bomb in the room. Let's talk about Lighthearted. So it's in it's in Kickstarter right now. Why don't you give just a brief intro of what Lighthearted is for everyone who may have not who has not seen it yet? All right. So Lighthearted is a magical '80s RPG. You play a jock, geek, prep, rebel, or outcast. Except you just started Magic Community College. <laughs> that's that's the prep. That or that's the that's the promo. That's the elevator pitch. <laughs> It's a it's a game about college mages in you know an alternate 1980s with neon rainbow magic where magic is ubiquitous everyone can do magic but it's you know kind of hard so not everybody does you got to go to magic community college and get an AA in magecraft or whatever <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's 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 kind of neat it's it's taking some a couple things that I love Kate and when Kate and I started working on it we we looked at Okay, well, we, we love these old 80s coming-of-age stories, but there's a lot of crap in there that we don't love. So what if we could tell stories like those or use that structure without including all of the, like, hang-ups and prejudices that existed in those stories? Okay, cool. Well, we also really love this, like, over-the-top aesthetic that existed in the 80s. The, like, gem and the holograms, the, the you know, the big shoulders, the big hair, the... The neon everything, right? And so we sort of started mashing that together, and we end up with this world where, you know, light equals magic, and the colors of light are tied to different types of magic, and you draw on light. So, like, when you do want to do a, a spell or something like that, you pull on red light to get fire, and you pull on blue light to create illusions. But the colors of light, the, they're also tied to emotions, And so when you are, say, when you're feeling blue, you're feeling a little surprised. Or when you're feeling red, you're feeling passionate or wrathful or angry. And so you, using this magic, you're, you're pulling on emotions, right? You're, you're drawing on your character's emotions. The other thing that I had been wanting to try, and it's funny because I was listening to a previous episode, I think it was Adam Bell talking about the influences for No Stone Unturned. The veil was a big influence for how for making a game that used magic as a stat or not magic emotions as a stat Mm -hmm. and i wanted to do it we wanted to do it in a different way than than the veil obviously and we 
well, I mentioned earlier that I was a big fan of Savage Worlds and I had, you know, done a lot of custom Savage Worlds stuff. And so when we first started out with this, it was just kind of a setting, right? It was a setting idea. We were going to make it in Savage Worlds and it had like a million skills and each type of magic was its own skill. And it was awful. <laughs> we didn't use half of it, right? But the the idea that these emotions were skills and that the like the setting had legs. And so we started looking at, well, what don't we need from Savage Worlds, right? And so we started just cutting whole cloth stuff off of Savage Worlds. And we realized, okay, we, we, we definitely need our own system. The dice mechanic is still sort of like has a lot of that Savage Worlds, you know, inspiration in it. The mm-hmm. You roll two different polyhedral dice and you keep the higher one. It, which is basically how Savage Worlds works. You're, you have traits which are uh, a die type, so you roll that die, and you you know. And then the other thing, though, Savage Worlds has a wild die, which you just roll a d6 with any roll, and that's mm-hmm. because you're a big damn hero. In mm-hmm. Lighthearted, you have an emotion spectrum. Excuse me. You have an emotion spectrum that has the different emotions on it, and when you enter a scene, you choose an emotional state. So you're like, oh, well, uh, we're at a party. My character's happy. I'm going to pick yellow. That's my emotional state. And then anytime you want to take an action, you roll the trait that fits it. So like bod motor, whatever. Uh, They're all like 80s, you know, slang things. And then you choose what emotion you feel about the thing you're about to do. And so you're like, oh, well, you know, I came in here happy, but now, you know, someone's picking a fight and I'm mad and I'm going to fight them. Right. And so I'm mad about this. I'm, I'm, I'm red. I'm feeling red. Well, that's two steps away from your emotional state. Right. So mm-hmm. the die you roll, that second die you roll, is determined by the emotion that you're feeling. So like your current emotion is a D8, your, the next one is a D6, and then anything else is a D4. So it's, it's sort of trying to represent like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling an emotion that's not how I felt when I got here. So I'm not like, it's, it's a jarring thing for me. So I'm not going to act as efficiently as I did before, right? Mm-hmm. So you end up with these... This, emotion spectrum as dice that you add to a role that also adds to you also have like how good am i at certain things right and so i like that you have both of that because you sort of get to mitigate like well this emotion is terrible for me but also i'm really good at being strong or whatever or this Mm -hmm. like trait is really bad for me i'm not very smart but i am really passionate about this thing and so like i'm going to do well because i really care uh, and so you end up with these weird mixes of, of emotion and trait going into roles and stuff. And it's, it's pretty cool. I, uh, there was a period eight months ago or something like that. I don't know. The birthday twin thing is really starting to freak me out lately because we have similar ideas in like in the brain trust discord. And I actually tried to write this game maybe eight months ago. No, seriously. Like not the, not an 80 shtick. It, it was like a very like, discover yourself sort of game but you know it was about color magic and delineating to like using gems that have that same color so rubies and sapphires and stuff and you know for me this game is striking a chord of like something that i wasn't seeing at least in my bubble of rpgs right this sort of like play on emotion color i know a lot of people talk about the veil but i haven't read the veil yet i'm working on it everyone (laughs) i have a big list of games to read for the year but no i i love it this game absolutely i it slaps it just absolutely slaps in in all the best ways i'm a big fan and as you talk about this sort of spectrum die system which i find really interesting that you're sort of picking or what you think is going to be the best 
stat essentially for the scene, right? Like you just said, we're going to a party. I want yellow. I'm feeling jazz. I'm going to roll a lot of yellow rolls here. And actually the scene starts to twist and turn and you end up with a blue situation. You're like, this is how I'm feeling. It's not that great. And what I like about it is that it signals to, as a prompt to the player to be like, embrace this emotional change, right? Mm Because I think they're, Without this, without the system, this the spectrum system, I think you could run into a trap of like creating a one noted character who's like always happy, always mad, and sometimes that can feel boring, and other times, in a more extreme measure, that can feel toxic at a table potentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I love that you're kind of presenting this thing where like you have you always have all the options to roll on all the colors, mm-hmm. but it's just about what did you think you were coming here to do, and how does that you know. Has that change if you start becoming scared, frightened, uh, you act like a coward, you want to show off, right? Like, just like, ooh, yellow's not going to do it here, so I need to find something else. And and I really love that. I think it's a really cool way to say, like, examine how does, how does Zane feel about going from being happy to mad to happy again to scared, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you were happy, your crush is at the party, you fought someone, and... You, you know, they were getting, re- it, the fight was getting really out of hand, and then your crush was there, and they saw you fight, and they don't like violent people, so now you're sad, and it's like just this constant roller coaster of emotion that gets captured with this system. So it's really, really cool. I think you nailed it on the head. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, so Kate, my our co-author, the Kate has been working on it with me, Kate's my wife, is a, a licensed psychologist, or not licensed, uh, is a psychologist. She, she will be mm-hmm. licensed in a few months. But so whenever whenever we add something that sort of fits into how do people feel emotions, we're, we're drawing on that expertise. And, and so we're working really closely with like how, how do people actually transition through different emotions and how how does that affect someone when they're they're feeling, you know, they, they sort of hit a, an emotional spike. Right. Uh, that's mm-hmm. another thing that uh, Adam brought up in, when he talked about the veil. And I thought it was funny because, oh, we have something like that. <laughs> but yeah so whenever you the 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 way it works when you're you know rolling dice and stuff you're you're sort of moving back and forth on this emotion spectrum because every time you roll a die you move one towards the one you rolled unless you roll your current emotion and then you mark stress because you start mm-hmm. to like you that's how you like end up in a little like i'm in a rage spiral now because i keep rolling it you start taking conditions mm-hmm. if you can't mark stress you only have one little stress box there and so you start taking these conditions, which are like now, okay, now I have a now I have a mechanical thing that says like I am angry or I am furious or whatever, and it's just filling mm-hmm. up your character. Uh, so you can't really keep rolling that same emotion without starting to see changes to your character. So it's it's kind of really neat. I, one of the fun things, or one of the really interesting things I saw when I ran playtests for like my home group, which is kind of more trad players, they one of the one of the characters kept doing things intentionally to bounce back and forth between the same emotion. Because if you roll the adjacent one, you don't take any consequences, but you get a D6. Mm -hmm. And so he kept doing it so that he would never roll the current emotion, but he always at least had a D6. And I was Mm -hmm, like, you know what? mm -hmm. If, If that's how I get this player to tell me why his character feels a certain way, I am cool Mm -hmm. with it. I got the track player to care about his character's feelings. I win. (laughs) (laughs) So I did it. Cool. Also, shout out to Kate. 
Thanks for helping create such a great game. I'm going to speak this out into the air. Kate and Spencer should definitely have a talk on the psych of RPG situation that he has. So, Spencer, if you're listening, I think there's a reach out opportunity here for you. Yeah, go follow. I don't want to. Oh, I was going to say go follow Pyro Kate on on Twitter. Pyro Kate. I will add that uh, into the. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For anyone who doesn't know my method, I have note cards back here that I take notes on, like a show (laughs) host. Amazing. There's some some things I definitely want to point out that I think there's really good language behind in this book. So sort of like the first thing is the the safety and tone and how you how your language approaches that, right? Because I think in some safety sections, it can be a little harsh for people. And I'm not saying there doesn't need to be a, a space for harshness when it comes to certain genre baggages, right? When we think about things like OSR or trad games, some of some people have gone to the links to be like, hey, look, listen, don't don't be an asshole. Don't be a degenerate when you play this game, right? Yeah. What I like about the specific section you have about 80s, like, man, the 80s sure were cool, but those are some rose-tinted glasses that we have on. Remember that not everything was as cool as you remember it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's really, especially for a game called 
lighthearted. I think it fits the tone and genre of saying, hey, you know, some of the things you remember as not problematic, there's a good chance they might have been. So really, really talk to yourselves at the table about that stuff. And I love the other things I want to point out that has really good language behind it, or at least mechanics behind it, is how you handle PvP between players, like how, you know, it's a fight between players. In the game, you act as chosen in your particular, you know, when you get selected by a deity. Mm -hmm. But it's a situation of, like, a, a circle of friends are not unscathed by a fight between friends. Like everyone's going to suffer consequences to some extent, which I really love and how you handle that with the opposed roles. And then the other sort of big shout out bits are the who's in control mechanic. Mm. I love something that's so concrete about saying who has the scene. And I know that there are other games that do that for sure, but I think there needs to be more of this consideration, maybe not for all games, more tactical games may not find this necessary or might be bloat to their particular system, but something that says like, okay, here's the mechanic of who's in control of the scene, who gets like the final say, and it doesn't always have to be the narrator, which I think also helps train a new generation of role player that says, we're not here to rely on the DM, on the GM, on the narrator, on the director for all of the fictional input. Mm-hmm. We have a say and we should have a say. We should we should both have and use the say that we have in terms of the story to, to generate a better experience. Because I think g- coming from a person's single subconscious is a bit limiting. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to dunk on anyone that has like a breath of novel and film and music inspiration it's really delivering an amazing experience for the table but like that can feel tiring like you spend five hours just loading off prompt after prompt after prompt you need some help in that so I, i love that and then i love a soft magic system that's very cool and i also the biggest thing is the narrator set the first of all the whole narrator section that you have in the book is like my new standard as far as like what i want to write in GM things because you help you help show how to set a scene in different ways right I love the camera film shot take of the cinematic approach when it comes to GMing if it's my GMing style very closely I love how you talk about also specifically the magic system and how to bring that how to narrate that and how to say like It shouldn't be hard for the players to do magic. It should be hard for the characters to do magic and sort of putting putting that specificity on that, right? You don't want to have this elongated discussion about what can and can't be done with magic. You just want to show that if you think it's hard, let it be hard in the narrative, right? Which is very, very cool. So I guess my question from all of that is, how long have you been working on the language of this game, because I know this is the version that I have is version 1.3, which means that you've probably been writing it for a, a little bit at least. You said that Sigil came out in March, and this came from Lighthearted, so you had to have at least started beginning 2020, 2019. So it's been about two and a half years. The mm-hmm. setting, we we started on the setting as like a thought experiment, like about mm-hmm. two and a half years ago. That And that was, I, I ran, I ran a a couple of games at gauntlet con which means mm-hmm. 
I had something functional to run by October of that year. So that would have been maybe 2018. Okay. And that was when it was still Savage Worlds, like, hack, right? It was just a bunch of skills in Savage Worlds. And it was, it was like, we told the story we wanted to, but we realized we were barely using Savage Worlds. Then when we really started to explore the emotion stuff and how we wanted to model emotions and, and, and that sort of thing, that's when, that's when Kate really, like, started to come in and, and, and shape the way the game went forward with, like, how the emotions functioned. And so as we started building it out that way, the, the setting was sort of, the setting has evolved a little bit in, in the last year or so. Part of, part of what I like about the lighthearted setting is that there's little bits that are canon and little bits that are anti-canon. Like, the game tells you, hey, there are four gods, and hey, there is a, the darkness, and hey, there are monsters, and there are, like, fairies. But we don't tell you, like, weaknesses for vampires. We say, I don't know, ask your table. Does anyone know a lot about occult stuff? Maybe they'll know. And you, mm-hmm. you sort of you're supposed to sort of build that stuff through the game. But the back to your question, the working on the language of the game has been that has evolved, I think, the most. The GM section was one of the most recent sections that we wrote, because, of course, the GM section is always the, the last thing you think about. Right. You're like, oh, well, we mm-hmm. need to tell players how to play their characters. I'll, I'll figure <laughs> out how to run it. Right. Yeah. But I think Kate and I sat down and we realized that the way that I like to run the game is the way that I want to, we want to teach people how to run it. And so basically Mm -hmm. Kate would sit with me and we would go through like, well, in this scenario, I would do this. And then we would try to write like, how do we teach someone to do that? And so basically the GM section of this game is how do you teach someone to to run a game like Kurt runs a game? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, But there's, there's a lot of stuff in there where it's like, okay, well, this is obviously you need tools to, to make things happen. And so we started adding more, more and more hard rules. The, the section definitely started as a very like, well, here's some ideas <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's, it gets, it gets harder. It becomes hard mechanics a little bit more every time we rewrite that section. So the game has gone through several iterations. The, the point three, the, that's a big update. <laughs> so <All right. laughs> I don't, I should have done like, that should really be like version 3.5 or whatever, but so we've we've gone through several iterations of the game. The the version that we're currently working on has seen one round of editing, so it's even different now than what the version that's was available to people on itch and early access. So yeah, it's it's gone through a lot of iterations. I've run a lot of games and made changes after every game. So yeah, it it's seen a lot of a lot of finessing. I I think that's what what's nice to hear. I think in a couple of episodes we talk about this, but it's nice to see the the journey of a current and work game. Some games are fever dreams and they happen in like a month or less. And but a game of this size, because this is in the PDF, it it's about a hundred pages or so. Some of them are are chapter fills or art pieces but right. also uh, i love first of all i would play a jock like just based on the imagery alone i would play a, a jock or a rebel in a heartbeat they're so cool and i'm the, i'm a 90s baby so i'm not even from the 80s the the playlist also i've been sorry tangent just because this game slaps the i listened to the playlist all morning today like getting ready for this podcast what i don't listen to any 80s music but all the 80s music that you picked were bangers, absolute bangers. So if you're listening to this podcast, maybe I'll put it in the description, but listen to the Spotify playlist while you're listening to this episode. It's real good. It's really, really good. So great job on that. Thanks. 
But aside, it's nice to hear about the journey of of a game for people because I think, at least for me as a new game designer, when I started tinkering, I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm probably not that good at this because I'm taking a real long time to like nail stuff down. And I'm sure other people feel that way. So I think what's important to state or what I feel is important to state is that the journey is different for everybody and every game is going to have a different journey as well. This could have been a Google doc. Like for me looking at it, this game is done. (laughs) It's all relative, right? Like I'm looking at this game and it's done. But for you, you have other versions that still aren't like out there in the mm-hmm. world yet, and they're still being tinkered with to really make sure it's as perfect as you, the the creator, want it. Mm-hmm. But for everyone out there listening, it's important to have to know that everything's very relative when it comes to what is quote unquote done, right? Or what feels like a quote unquote game. Yeah. I I definitely want to say not every game needs to be a big game. Like, right, not every yep. game should be over 100 pages. Not every game should be over 10 pages. I have written <laughs> I've written a few little zine games that are, like, super fun and great to play. And, like, Sledgehammer, we talked about, it spawned a whole thing that is on a page. It's, it's, it's yep. two 8.5 by 11s folded up to make a little 8-page thing. It's, it's, it's a good idea that makes a fun experience at a table. Mm-hmm. That's a game. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, can, if you can guide an experience the way Mm -hmm. you wanted to, it doesn't matter how many words you used. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And sometimes less is more for sure. Like really just saying like, this is it. D100, call it a day. Start, start doing stuff. And if that's your, it's also, not only is it relative from designer to designer, but it's also relative from designer to player, right? Because what one player may not see as a finished game, another player might say like, this is everything I need. All I need is a D20 table and I, and I love it. Right. So you have to let your consumer base, you know, talk about the business of game design also find itself. Right. You're not going to find your your base right away, especially in the indie game industry. Mm-hmm. You're you'll find people who like your style. You'll find people who like your choice of mechanics. Right. You know, you'll find people that want to get away from the D20 and you'll find people that want to get away from dice pools. And that'll attract you to your hack or whatever have you. So. Mm-hmm. Really, really great stuff. But enough of enough of the generals. The other sort of things for lighthearted that I really love specifically is the magic system and how you sort of make that. I I struggle very hard when it comes to developing a soft, like right in magic system, like. Something that just gives a couple examples of like, this is what yellow magic looks like. Instead of having hard mechanics that say like, yellow magic is lightning magic. Here's lightning bolt and thunder wave and blah, 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 right? That's where my head goes all the time. And I'm like, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I'm a tactical junkie. So that's where my head lies. Oh, but sort of what was the experience in writing this magic system? Can can you say that again? I I missed it. What you said? Yeah, I was just I was just saying. What was what was your experience in trying to craft a soft magic system? Right. So it actually didn't start out that way. I mentioned <laughs> it was a Savage Worlds hack, and there are pages and pages of <laughs> Savage Worlds custom powers that fit with the different colors that just are just going to live in a Google Drive somewhere <laughs> because they are so useless. The first I ran I ran a game on stream. 
And, and I, I had this like whole binder. It was like, uh, you know, those, those little cardboard fold tab binder things. Mm -hmm. And it had like, it had a two page, two eight and a half by 11 page character sheet. And then it had like four pages of spells and shit. It was unusable. And I sat down (laughs) to run this game that was like for a charity thing. And it was people who had barely played D and D and they're sitting down and looking at it. And one of the girls goes, Okay, I'm a lot, but this is a lot. And I was like, you're right, and I'm sorry. <laughs> so, oh, Jesus. So, <laughs> it, was, it was one of my favorite moments from like, okay, that's a mistake. We're not going to do that. And so the, the game evolved, right? We, we started this. We, one, we moved away from actually being Savage Worlds, and we're now just we're all, our own unique system. And we realized that, you know what? There's no reason to have a fire spell that does so much damage because I don't care if how much damage it does. We just want to know how it affects the characters, right? And so mm-hmm. when you want to do something in the game, like say you want to hurt somebody, you roll to inflict a condition. If you're doing that with magic, there's some extra rules to say like, oh, yeah, well, normally I could punch you, right? But I'd have to be next to you. Or, well, I'm going to use telekinesis, so now I don't have to be next to you. It's, it's just fictional positioning, right? It's, it's an excuse or it's a reason why you can do a thing that you couldn't do physically. You know, you want to fly around? Well, I mean, you could probably get up there with a crane or something, but we're just going to use magic, right? Mm-hmm. And so achieving something is just establishing risks and, and what you want and then finding out, do the risks come true or do you, and do you get what you want? And mm-hmm. so... We only needed enough of a magic system for it to not feel like they're having to make everything up themselves, right? Mm -hmm. There only needs to be enough and enough setting in there that you have a jumping off point. And so saying, oh, well, yellow is conjuration magic. And then using Mm -hmm. the example mentions someone making a a little, I I think I called it a lemon. It's like a round (laughs) little construct guy that can just carry stuff around for you. And it's like, well, it's unseen servant. But it's yellow, yeah, and so yeah. it's called a lemon. And, like, you just need enough to be like, oh, I get it, right? And it's mm-hmm, like, oh, it, mm-hmm. well, conjurations look like yellow glass. And you're like, great, I know how to describe what I want to make. And then you just roll, and yeah. did you make the thing? Well, the dice will tell us, right? Mm-hmm. Also, usually magic is just a means to another goal anyways. And so the consequences of failing a magic roll shouldn't always be about whether or not the magic happened should be about, did you get what you wanted, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to use fire to, to impress somebody. Well, oh, you lit somebody on fire, and now they're disappointed in you, and you're sad. You have a condition sad. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, what yeah. happened yeah, when yeah, you yeah, failed yeah. your fire roll. So, yeah, it's, that's, that's how we got to the soft magic system we have. It's because the game doesn't necessarily care about how much damage you can do with a fire spell. It cares about what's going to happen to your character if they don't succeed and what's going to happen if they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. I I really love that input because again, my hegemony hegemony is that what it's called? Hegemony lies with D and D five e. That's that was my first gaming experience. That was for my first like magic system experience when it comes to delineating into a role playing game. Off of that, I bounced from Blades in the Dark to Iron Sworn to Band of Blades to those sort of systems, and they didn't really have they have magic quote unquote in them, Mm -hmm. but nothing that delineates into like a spell casting sort of thing. So I love, so I've only had experience with what I would call the hard magic 
version of tabletop games, granular, tactical, whatever have you. Mm-hmm. So the soft magic system, I think strikes, like you said, it has the, it has a good amount of saying like, this is the, the categorical box you have to think in when you're going to pull red magic out of the air. Right. And it can't be anything different than that category, but it's manipulation can be the sky's the limit on it, right? Mm. Small fire, big fire, shaped fire, smoke, ash, like all of that stuff can come from thinking about all the delineations that come from heat and fire magic, mm-hmm. right? So I, for me, I've already, you know, I've written that down and, and taken that to heart. So how to soft magic reference lighthearted is what I wrote down. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it is just there. there are some limitations in there, right? There's... You can only inflict so many conditions at a time. Mm-hmm. You can only like it's it's still kind of so it's the the limitations are well you probably only affect one person or you probably only inflict mm-hmm. one condition or you probably only reach this far, and then right. it's like well do you want to do more? Well the risks are going to go up. <laughs> just yeah. just say okay well that could like blow your arm off because your you know your arm is on fire now. Are you okay with mm-hmm. that risk? And if they are, then cool you can do the big flashy thing you wanted to do. But it's really up to the table to kind of decide how powerful magic is at your table. Or if you want to be tempted by dark magic. Right. There is dark magic in this game that you can be <laughs> tempted by. And you can do whatever you want with dark magic. But it yeah. co- it costs you. You start taking yeah, conditions yeah. and you can lose your character and stuff like that. Yeah. I love it. I think it captures, you know... If we're looking to a major pop culture reference, this is the perfect delineation to Harry Potter, right? Like, to some extent. For whatever baggage Harry Potter has for those who (laughs) are listening, you know, J.K. Rowling is not in the greatest of graces currently. But seriously, as like, I always try to, because I don't know who's listening to this, right? And and Harry Potter, sort of that. Or Magical Girl animes for people who may not watch those sort of films. Mm -hmm. This is a great delineation for those sort of school-powered... Like, when I was reading this, I thought of two hacks, like, two setting hacks almost immediately. There's this mecha high school anime called Infinite Stratos, I believe is the name, which is really cool. And I I was like, I could see it. I could see all the, like, clicks becoming, like, types of mechs they use and things like that. And then uh, all the courses they have to take for combat and shooting range and all that stuff. And then I also thought about, oh, shit, I'm going to lose it. Nope, just the mech one. Now, uh, second one will come to me when I'm sleeping tonight. But yeah, there's there's this really cool. It's it's. I guess what I'm trying to state is that it's a really great delineation for like the magical high school, magical college sort of ethos of storytelling or genre mm-hmm. telling in in that sense. And I could see so you know you talked about how you're like I I can't think of a game I'd create where it would have all these jam pieces to it. I think that different settings and kind of tapping into that school. I know that Aaron Lim made Malaysian, ooh, shit, what's the name of it? Student Heroes of Malaysia? I believe that is the name of the game. But talking about how it's a sort of high school power game where the scope of the game, they only care about their town. It's not like a big defeat the cosmos or protect the world. It's Protect just the village you live in for school. Yeah. And I love thinking about this scope of like this game as far as much as I've read 
really only focuses on like the college and their experience sort of in that tangential area. It doesn't seem like it really goes out. I mean, I guess it could, but goes out into the bigger world, right? You're not traveling to other countries unless you play a campaign where you're foreign exchange students. Anyone can steal that idea. You're welcome to have it. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I, I love this this genre, and I think that for me, in my reading, this is the best example of sort of that magical high school-ish. Yeah, well, I definitely wanted, one of the things we wanted out of the game is we wanted it to be able to tell, like, teen coming-of-age stories. And so the the goal of that is like, well, sure, there's the Breakfast Club, right? And that's the Mm -hmm. the model that everybody, everybody tries to run a D&D Breakfast Club game. I got so sick of looking at it, I was like, okay, I'm just going to make the game. <laughs> so if you want to run <laughs> Breakfast Love D&D, just run lighthearted, please. Yes, yes. <laughs> but the the like coming of age stories and the the character focused stories that those those things tell, like I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. speaking of the 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 show I thought of when you were talking about the Malaysian high school students is My Hero Academia, right? Where they're, they're yeah, dealing absolutely. right. And so, but yeah. those are all character stories, right? It's it's mm-hmm. stories about their own personal journey. It's not about like the how the sure they talk about how powerful they're becoming, but really that's just an extension of them becoming more assured of themselves and getting used to who they are as a person. And so mm-hmm. Lighthearted tries to focus on that side of it, right? It tries to focus on the let's tell this coming of age story where you're becoming a more self actualized person. And it does that through malfunctions, but the the like modern fantasy piece that comes in when when you look at like, okay, well, our story kind of focuses around this town or the college, or maybe it, maybe your story focuses on the bar that all the kids go to after school, like whatever that is, the story is going to care most about their personal journeys and less about the big cosmic problems. And so like you may bump into a big cosmic problem, but like it's going to be just as important if you break up with your boyfriend tonight or if you (laughs) save the world, like that's going to be just as important in the game. Yeah, what was it? I read the section, I think it's the section under dark magic where it's like, no one wants to believe you about the dark magic and you can use the prep character to sort of like back your cause. But right now they don't give a shit about you because they're waiting for a call from their crush later tonight. Like that's what's on their mind. And I love that sort of, uh, again, using the example of my hero, like you said, it's about, it's this character story. It's about how how does it affect you right it's not how to some extent how does it affect the overall world narrative but that is always coming from the focal point of you as a as a character as a playable character Mm -hmm. and how does it affect you i think it's this interesting reverse i guess is what i'm trying to state here of like where in D &D, it's not character driven it's world driven it's narrative driven right it's about how does it affect the kingdom of ur how does it affect the kingdom of u right how does it affect the desert how does it affect the gods it's never about how does it affect you the paladin Mm -hmm. right your story, the story is told through you as the paladin, but no one cares about how, you know, they never say how paladin, not why paladin, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so I like this. I like that this game takes the reverse and says, why paladin? And then how does that influence the rest of the world? How do you as a chosen shape the world, basically, mm-hmm. right? I think that's the big through line is that how how do you affect the world? Right. Not how does the world affect you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Or both. I guess it's resonant, resonant in that in that sense. Amazing. Lighthearted is going to be on Kickstarter for how much? This episode is going to come out next Monday. Okay, so Lighthearted will escaping. have just ended. 
on heard. Friday the the 26th. All right, fuck it. Then I'll probably bomb next week and release you in the middle of the week for like a last week sprint. So whoever's listening, welcome to the second episode for this week. And yeah, that'll, so Lighthearted is on Kickstarter right now. Please go get it. I'll say it again in the outro. There will be a link in the show note. Get the game. Get the early access. Watch the journey. Watch Kurt and Katie's work explode and be amazed. Thank you. Uh, Of course. too so this is so Kurt in this section I always ask if someone just wants a quick TLDR tip of how do I be a better game designer and they didn't want to listen to the other 45 minutes of this episode but you should because there's lots of good good nuggets in there what is a tip you can give in any form of your experience as a game designer about game design so you know it can be anything from like dice models to sections that you think should be in the book or anything of, of that structure Right, that kind of fits within that category. Okay. All right. So I guess, I mean, I, there, there's the whole, you know, what is your game about question out there, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's that's a good one. Everybody always talks about it. I'm not going to talk about that. What do your mechanics care about is the mm-hmm. thing I want to ask everybody. Because mm-hmm. if you're making a game where your mechanics care about how hard you can punch and how strong you are and how fast you are and how good you are at jumping over boulders, then your game is about being strong and fast and jumping over boulders. If your game cares about how your character deals with the trauma of being in a scary place, like that could be the same setting, right? But Mm -hmm. if, if the mechanics focus on how you change as a person, how the traumatic experiences you find in a dungeon shape you, then that's a different that's a different game than the dungeon crawl where you care about how hard you punch and how good you are finding traps and how likely it is that you'll, you know, take some damage. So when you're, when you're thinking about what mechanics are useful for your game and and that kind of thing, a lot of people ask about balance. Like how do I balance these characters? Ask if your game cares about that. Does your game care about Mm -hmm. balance? It may not. Your game may care about, does everybody get a chance to be cool? And in that, balancing your playbooks or your classes or whatever is really about, does everybody have one opportunity to do the thing my game cares about and one opportunity to do the thing, you know, does everybody have the same opportunity to do the thing that the game cares about is where your balance Mm -hmm. lives. And so if you can, if you can answer that question, then you can look at all of your mechanics through that lens. Well, does this mechanic, is this mechanic necessary because does my game care about it? I wrote a game called Tricksters where there's only, it's it's a PBTA game where there's only two moves. Mm-hmm. Teach a lesson and, oh shoot, what's the other one? It's teach a lesson and resist the temptation are the two moves. Mm-hmm. Because the only thing the game cares about. Because you are playing trickster spirits who are trying to like help a town, help the people of a town or whatever. And the only thing that we actually really want to know is, do you, can you tell a moral, like teach them a moral and can you, mm. can you resist your temptations? Cause you're trickster spirits. Cause that's like the oh, thing that so it cares about. Good. That doesn't mean that there aren't other things that happen in the game, but the only time the mechanics come up, the only time the game tells you what to do is when one of those two things happens. So 
figure out what it is your game cares about, what you want your game to care about, and then look at all your mechanics through that lens. Yeah, you know, as you stated when you when you started that, just sort of what is your game about is more like a theme, genre, baggage sort of question. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it helps delineate talking about like you don't, you know, you talked about how your game started as a Savage World system. You're like, it's just not working. It's not telling the story you want to tell. And you kept, you know, you're cutting off huge chunks of it until you're left with this uh, very beautiful book at the end. And I think there's definitely that, you know, I have a, a questions document that whenever I have a new game idea, I always answer like, what is the game about? What do the mechanics care about? What are the players doing? Right? Like that sort of thing. I wholly advise anyone who's making or starting out their gaming career and doesn't know how to structure their creative process, make a quick questions document with some basic things. You can Google it, find it, listen to every episode of this podcast and develop it. I would like the latter to happen. <laughs> but same for me, like I'm designing this kaleidoscope game and you know, I love technical things. I'm trying to, inf- it's getting a little bit of influence from Monster Hunter, but when it, in its first design, it was very like heavy on dice roll mechanics and there were three moves to every move and like it just got kind of blown out of the water and it got really encumbersome and I was like, this is not this is not what I'm trying to capture here. I'm trying to ex- capture exploration. So there's going to be exploration phases. It cares about how to figure out if you're able to survive a monster fight or not and kind of putting in some magic gathering inspiration. So all that's to say is like my game cares about exploration. It cares about surviving in the wild and it cares about relationships between nations. And so those are the three big buckets of like, now I can start making moves. Now I can start making dice mechanics. Now I can start making a skills list if I want it. And that will all delineate into those things. Cause you never want to engage the, me- I guess for me, you never want to engage the mechanics of a game until you need to make a decision about something. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's like we know it's going to happen. We can improv. We can hang out. We can have like a questions prompt table. And when we don't know something, that's when we roll dice. I mean, it's in every book. Right. When do you roll dice when there's conflict? So how do you resolve it by rolling it? So if if the dice aren't answering the question of the conflict that comes up in the stories you're telling, it doesn't need to be there. Ultimately, I mean, if it's fluff, it's fluff and you like it and you want to stick to your guns about it. Let it rip. I'm not telling someone not to do something, but definitely examine how much fat is on your well, game. Right? And that's not to say that your setting or your there shouldn't be things in the experience or, or in the world that don't fit with that. What it means is right. like if you're building a game that cares about what the trauma that you experience in a dungeon, who cares how many dice of damage a fireball spell does? I want to know mm-hmm. how I feel about the fact like, did I just, do I, do I feel guilty about using such a violent fireball spell? Mm-hmm. Do I, you know, was the, the, was seeing the result of it, the thing that triggered whatever it is in me? Like if you're playing Darkest Dungeon, the damage, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it, that's a roguelike, so the damage matters because you're playing a roguelike. But <laughs> if your game cares about something other than damage, then you don't need a damage roll. Like just mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. yeah, it does the thing. And then, mm-hmm. and then use the dice to, to find out what the you know did i take the harm or did i take the you know emotional guilt or whatever if your if your game is about fighting then yeah you want you need damage rolls because you want to know how how hard you hit it and how many more times you have to hit it and you know that's (laughs) just find out what your game really wants to say 
Got to figure out when the skeleton stops trying to beat you down. <laughs> what? Did anyone ever ask if the skeleton was okay? Maybe we, maybe he yeah. needs a hand. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, dude. Uh, kiss the skeleton. Just let it happen. <laughs> Amazing. I think that's, I think those are all really great tips. And with that, I think that brings us to the end of the show. Kurt, I want to thank you so much for being here i had an absolute ball once again can you tell people where to find you where to find the light-hearted kickstarter again all these links will be in the show notes for your access listeners yes of course and thank you so much for having me on I, I, this was a blast to be here i, I really love the show like i said and i'm so excited i got to be on i'm kurt uh kurt potts you can find me on twitter at kurt potts or anywhere else at Kurt Potts. You can find information about Lighthearted by going to lighthearted.games. That's lighthearted, all one word, dot G-A-M-E-S. And that will take you to wherever the most relevant place is to get information on Lighthearted. Right now, that's the Kickstarter page, which ends on February 26th at sometime in the afternoon on PST. <laughs> so please go back it, because it's I we are blown away. The, the Kickstarter is over like 30K. We did not expect it to do that well. We are so thankful for all the support that everyone has given. So yeah, definitely go check that out. And then if you want to learn more about Kate, who's the co-author of Lighthearted, you can follow her on Twitter at PyroKate. Amazing. Perfect. As always, everyone, I've been Jeremy Gage. This has been Draw Your Dice, and I've had a beautiful time learning alongside you. Say bye to the people, Kurt. Goodbye, people. Bye. Bye. I love you. I love you. <laughs> all right, that's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed all my gushing over Lighthearted. It is such a good game. Kurt, thank you again, and know that I think this game is a slam dunk for both you and Kate. All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Kurt or Kate, as well as links to their Kickstarter for Lighthearted, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you liked the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way by donating on Venmo at DYD Podcast. Or, if you are unable to provide monetary support, you can provide support at no cost by sharing this with someone you thought of while listening to this episode and leaving a review. Both of these methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me at JeremyH5 over on Twitter with the hashtag IDidIt. That's I-D-Y-D-I-T. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.